church this morning, and I'm going to read a number of scriptures in the message, so I'm not going to read any up front, but there are printed messages at both exits. You can get one either now or later as you like, and there should be an outline in the bulletin, and if you didn't get one of those and want one, feel free to get up and grab them there at all three exits, and um, you can get all the back messages for 25 years worth on the church website as well, either printed or audio messages. I want to talk about the subject this morning of looking for a good church, and the question that may pop into your mind immediately is, uh, why would I want to preach a sermon on looking for a good church. I mean, maybe someone will hear it and decide, I'm out of here. I mean, this isn't a good church. Or maybe it'll expose a lot of problem areas in our church that uh, will lead to a lot of grumbling and discontent. Well, let me give you several reasons I'm preaching on the subject. First of all, uh, there may well be someone here in the process of looking for a good church. And you need to know what to look for. And in my experience, I've found that people look for churches based on, well, I don't know how to say it nicely, but unbiblical reasons, superficial reasons. Uh, I've had people say, uh, I, I really think I should come to this church. And I'll say, why is that? I just like the, the feel I get when I walk in the building. Well, that's glad you like the feel, but really... Uh, you could get that feeling walking into a, a Buddhist temple or something, you know. I, it, it feeling isn't the basis for picking a good church. And others will say, well, I just feel loved and accepted here. And again, that's fine. I hope you feel loved and accepted here. But you could feel loved and accepted at the Mormon church as well. And there are reasons not to go to a church that doesn't teach the gospel. Uh, some pick a church, many, many pick a church saying, well, my kids like it here. And again, I hope your kids like it here. Uh, but really, who's running the show? Your kids or you? You need to be picking a church based on more solid reasons than your kids get good vibes here. You know, it needs to be a little more substantial. Uh, I've heard of people who say the music rocks. That's why we went to that church or whatever church. Well, again, I hope our music, I don't know that I hope it rocks, but I hope it's edifying and worshipful and lifts us into the presence of God, but uh, not a totally substantial reason. And I've even heard people, I love this building. Okay, well, great. I'm glad we have a nice classic old building. I would probably redesign it a little differently if I had my druthers, but, you know, that's not a good reason to pick a church. So we need to have biblical criteria. If you were here when I started the series on the church, I didn't want to show it again, but I played a video, uh, Church Hunters, and uh, it was a spoof on uh, this couple, young millennial couple looking for a church, and the guy who's their agent trying to find them the right church, he says, you know, the pastor started untucking his shirt a few months ago, and they go, ooh, you know, like that's really a good reason to pick a church. So, uh, yeah, we need to go to the Bible. So 
That's one reason I'm preaching on this, is you need to understand what the Bible says about what constitutes a good church. And you may have friends looking for a good church, and although you would assume they're looking into the Bible, often your friends will be searching for a church based on those superficial reasons I just mentioned. And so you can share with them what the Bible says. And then a third reason is to apply to us, and that is we need to hold up a standard and say, how are we doing? How are we doing? We, we may be falling short in some of these areas, and we need to improve. And uh, we need to keep in mind, of course, there is no such thing as a perfect church. You've heard the old joke, if you find a perfect church, don't join it, you'll ruin it. Um, and the reason there are no perfect churches is there are no perfect people. And churches happen to be made up of people. So uh, you won't find a perfect church, not this one for sure, but you can find good, solid churches that approximate these conditions. And so that's why I want to go over these today. Now, I confess I don't ever recall preaching a sermon with 10 points, and I'm going to do that today. So maybe this is a first in 40 years, I don't know, but... Uh, I don't expect you to remember all ten by memory. I probably couldn't uh, myself. But maybe the first three or four, which are really essential, you can keep in mind, especially the first point that I'm going to mention. And some, of course, today I'm just going to skim over these to cover ten points in uh, 40 minutes here. But Uh, In the rest of the series, I'm going to single out a few of these and devote an entire message to some of these points. So uh, what I'm trying to get across today, then, is that a good church is comprised of at least these ten qualities. Maybe you can think of some others. Uh, The first, and I am going to argue foundational point, is that a good church is one that treasures and teaches God's word of truth accurately and practically with the aim of equipping the saints for the work of service. Now, maybe you're thinking, oh, of course Steve would pick preaching and teaching because that's what he does. Uh, But I'm going to argue that this has to be foundational in any church. And if it's not foundational, I guarantee you pretty soon that church is going to be veering off the truth because the enemy is always, always promoting false teaching. And sometimes at first it's just a little deviance. But as it goes on, it begins to go farther and farther from the truth, and that's how many of the cults started. Um, There are many churches today, some of the largest and most popular in the country, that simply are conforming to the culture. They, they do not teach God's word in an uncompromised manner. They don't confront sin. Uh, they don't talk about righteousness and judgment. And they don't preach the gospel. Now, rather than my arguing the point, I'm just going to read you a bunch of verses that I hope convince you. And there are more. I just had to limit it for sake of time. But... Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, speaking of the early church, says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So first and foremost was the apostles' teaching. 
Uh, in Acts chapter 20, in verse 20, Paul is reminding the Ephesian elders of his ministry when he was there in that uh, church. And he said, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. And of course, he's referring to the Bible uh, and teaching you publicly and from house to house. And then jumping down to verse 27 in the same message, uh, Paul says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. So from all the scripture, that's what he was teaching. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, Paul writes, In case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. That statement makes it clear there is such a thing as spiritual truth and therefore spiritual error, and the church is to be the pillar and support of that truth, God's word. First Timothy 5. Verse 17, Paul is talking here in the context about the need to support elders, financially support elders who preach and teach. He says, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. And that word honor is a reference to pay. Especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Second uh, Timothy 2.15, Paul again exhorts his young Understudy, be diligent to present yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Second uh, Timothy three sixteen and 17, Paul, reminding Timothy of the importance and the power of Scripture, says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And then the very next verse, there's a chapter break there, but he continues on in chapter 4 of Second Timothy. Uh, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. I don't know how much higher he could raise the the ante there. He says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. If you were here 25 years ago when I began my ministry here, my very first sermon was on that text, and I titled it, My Major Task and Yours. My major task is to preach God's word of truth accurately, and your task is to hear the word with a heart to obey. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. He gave some as apostles and some as prophets, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, 
uh, to the building up of the body of Christ. And he goes on to say that this equipping ministry of pastors and teachers is going to keep the church from being tossed around by every wind of doctrine that blows and uh, keep them uh, focused on the truth. So my main aim each Sunday, especially as I'm doing expository preaching, which is my normal mode of teaching through a text of Scripture, is I want you, when you walk out of here, to be able to look at those verses and say, I understand them in their context, and I understand now how they apply to my life. That's my, my aim every single week, however I come at a particular text. A second mark of a good church is that it's one where the gospel is proclaimed without compromise. Romans 1.16, Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek or the Gentile. And since the gospel is necessary for salvation, which refers to God's uh, rescuing us, delivering us from his judgment, uh, the enemy is always, always attacking the gospel. Usually subtly, just getting it a little bit off. Pretty soon it's way off. Um, But he always is promoting false gospels. Many times those false gospels, as with the error in Galatia, the Judaizers, it involves adding human works to uh, what Christ has done as the means of salvation so that people can boast in their works rather than in Christ. Uh, Sometimes the gospel, false gospels, divert away from human sinfulness and they don't confront the fact that we are all in sin and need a savior. And so in that form, it comes at people saying, would you like a happy life? Let me tell you how you can have a happy marriage, a happy family, a successful career, a good self-esteem, whatever it may be. And they, they basically market Jesus as a better form of self-help. That's not the gospel because it doesn't confront our sin and our need for Jesus and his shed blood for our need for repentance, turning from our sin to Christ. The true gospel is, again, recognizes our human condition. We've all sinned. Every single one of us has rebelled against God, not just once, but over and over and over and over from youth up. And that means we all deserve God's holy and righteous judgment because he is holy and he cannot just brush over sin. Also, we have to recognize that no amount of good works is going to tip the scale and get us into heaven. We have to abandon our trust in our own righteousness and say, no, that isn't going to cut it. And the gospel is that God in his mercy and love sent his own eternal son, Jesus, and he sent him to die on the cross to bear the penalty we deserve. And God didn't just have him on the cross, but he raised him from the dead, as Jesus predicted before his death, and he ascended into heaven. And now the good news is this, that God offers forgiveness of sins and eternal life to any sinner who will turn from his sin and believe in Jesus. That is such great news. 
All we have to do is trust in Jesus and his shed blood as the substitute for our sins. And so salvation is not a reward for human works. Salvation is a free gift, a free gift that God offers to those who don't deserve it, and that's all of us. So a solid church then preaches that gospel and doesn't veer from it. A third mark of a good church is that it emphasizes loving God and loving one another and worshiping God in spirit and truth. You know that Jesus summed up all of God's commandments with two. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven to 39, he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the, the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus also told the woman at the well in John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, um, an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So what I'm saying here is that healthy churches major on the majors. They really focus on the two great commandments, love God, love one another, and on the fact that we should be worshipers of God. Love for one another, or love for God, I should say, starting with, is not just a feeling, Love for God means obeying his commandments, as Jesus said. So it's not just, oh, I feel like I love God. No, if you love God, you keep his commandments out of love. Uh, Love for one another means seeking the highest good of the other person, which is that that person would be holy. And so sometimes love has to come alongside and say, brother, you need to turn from your sin. Uh, Worshiping God is a matter of our hearts. That's essentially what he means, worship in spirit. It's not our outward performance. It's not outward ritual. It's a matter of the heart before God. And it must be in truth. That means it must be based on the truth of God's word, of who he is, who we are, who Christ is, all of those things. So a good church, then, is one that is based on God's word, that preaches the gospel, that emphasizes loving God, loving one another, worshiping God in spirit and truth. A fourth thing is that a church, a good church, is one that emphasizes making disciples who live by God's grace uh, in the power of the Spirit, apart from legalism, I should add, obedient disciples. By legalism, I'm referring to man-made rules that aren't in the Bible, Rules over usually petty issues, outward issues where we can judge those who do our rules are spiritual, those who don't we condemn and take pride in our obedience to these outward things. And that was the problem with the Pharisees in Jesus' day. They kept all the rituals. They added more commandments than the ones in the Old Testament, especially on the Sabbath And they condemned everybody who didn't do their Sabbath thing, including Jesus, and prided themselves on their own keeping it. But Jesus said, 
Uh, you guys obey all your man-made rules, but your hearts are far from God. And that was the problem. Now, sometimes I've seen Christians who throw off legalism and then they swing to the other extreme and say, we don't have to obey God. And they fall into disobedience on that way. Uh, you can't do that because the Great Commission, which Jesus entrusted to us in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, is therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then notice, teaching them <clears throat> to observe or obey all which I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And so disciples are followers of Jesus who are growing in obedience to him and his commandments. Now, they aren't doing it outwardly as the Pharisees to impress others. They're doing it from the heart, out of love for God, walking in the power of his Holy Spirit who indwells them. Uh, I love the way Paul puts it in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. He says, for the grace of God has appeared. Okay, what does grace do? Bringing salvation to all men, meaning it's available to all, instructing us to, here's what grace does, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us uh, from every lawless deed and, notice again, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So there is no um, tension between God's grace and obedience or God's grace and holy living. It's grace that motivates us to obey God. A fifth mark of a good church is that it's one where loving fellowship among the saints is edifying and healthy. Going back to Acts 2.42, we saw that the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and then the second thing mentioned is to the fellowship. <clears throat> and then a few verses later, I think Luke describes that fellowship in Acts 2.46. He says, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple... And breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. So <clears throat> it was personal fellowship, interacting on the things of God together over meals that was uh, a mark of the early church. In Ephesians four fifteen and 16, Paul describes the healthy church. He says, but speaking the truth in love... We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together, uh, not just by what the pastor says, but by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And so clearly there it's talking about the mutual edification that we have as saints as we have fellowship on a smaller basis than just gathering Sunday mornings. 
you could put all of the one another's of the New Testament under this head as well. I just didn't have time to read some of those. A sixth mark of a good church is that it's one where the ordinances of baptism and communion are practiced regularly and biblically. Uh, The reformer John Calvin listed two things as the mark of a true church, the preaching of the word of God and the proper administration of the sacraments or the the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, Other reformers added a third mark, and that was church discipline, which I will mention last uh, or further down in this message. Um, Now, I admit many Christians, including John Calvin, argued for baptizing infants, which we do not. I believe scripture is overwhelmingly clear that baptism is to be for those who make a credible profession of faith in Christ and it is to be a public testimony of their faith in Christ for salvation. Uh, I'll devote another message to baptism and the Lord's Supper later on in this series. Uh, There's no commandment in the Bible about how often we should observe the Lord's Supper Apparently, in the early church, it was every Lord's Day. I'll be honest, I would do it every Lord's Day, uh, but we have this conundrum of trying to get two services out and sharing missionary things and other things, and so uh, it's difficult for us schedule-wise to do that, but I'll talk more about that on the message on the Lord's Supper. A seventh mark of a good church is that it's one where prayer undergirds everything. Again, going back to Acts 2.42, the early church devoted itself to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread, which refers to the Lord's Supper, but also then to prayer. Uh, In Romans 12.12, Paul commanded us to be devoted to prayer, and he repeats that command in Colossians 4.2, devote yourselves to prayer. In 1 Thessalonians 5.17, he gives that seemingly impossible command, pray without ceasing. And uh, I've heard it said, well, that means you're to pray every walking second, waking second, or uh, uh, always be in a spirit of prayer. I don't think that's what he meant. The word without ceasing was used of a hacking cough or of repeated military assaults. And when that happens, it's not incessant all the time it means repeatedly in every situation you keep coming back again and again and again to prayer and we should do that both individually with our lives praying about small things as well as big things and we should do it corporately as a church and it really blesses me when I after the service see two believers over gathered and they're talking and they're praying together for some need, and that's really vital in the church that we pray. Um, Prayer acknowledges we're dependent on God for his blessing, not on our organization, not on my ability to preach, not on anything but God. We, We wait on him. Over 40 years ago, I read a sermon by Watchman Nee, the Chinese uh, church leader that I would say has marked my ministry 
in a profound way. Uh, I was thankful to see. You can find it online. If you Google expecting the Lord's blessing, there's a PDF version of his sermon that you can read. I encourage you to do that this week. But he's basing it mainly on the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And uh, Nee makes the point. He says, everything in our service for the Lord is dependent on his blessing. The meeting of the need is not dependent on the supply in hand, but on the blessing of the Lord resting on the supply. And he points out how the five loaves and the two fish were were just woefully inadequate to feed 5,000 men plus women and children. That's impossible. And you remember that Philip comes up with a mental calculation. Well, Lord, even 200 denarii wouldn't buy enough to feed this crowd. Of course, they didn't have 200 denarii. That was a lot of money. Uh, But that wouldn't even have been enough if they'd come up with that amount of money. And uh, Nee points out how we're always calculating about the 200 denarii that we don't have. And uh, we're not resting on on the Lord's blessing. And uh, then he, he points out how when Jesus blessed that meager supply, everyone was satisfied. And you know how many baskets full they picked up? Twelve. One for each disciple. Each one had a whole basket of leftovers to take home. And uh, Nee says this, that God's blessing is trusting him to work out of all correspondence to what we might reasonably expect based on our abilities and our efforts and our resources. And my prayer ever since I began in ministry 40 years ago has always been, Lord, I am I'm woefully inadequate. I'm like those five loaves and two fish. But would you do a work that would show your power, that would bring glory to you far beyond anything any of us here can accomplish or do by our power and our strength and anything else we're doing. And I would encourage you to join me in praying that prayer for this church and for your life. Lord, I just, all I got is these five loaves and two fish. What is that for so many, as the disciples said? But at your word, and they give it to the Lord, and he blessed it and broke it. Prayer. An eighth mark is that a good church is one that emphasizes reaching the lost. That would be both locally and globally, reaching the lost. The Great Commission, as we read, is to make disciples of all nations, and the word refers to people groups, ethne. Uh, We are to begin here in our city, but then we are to extend the good news to uh, the ends of the earth. In Luke twenty four forty seven, right before he ascended, Jesus directed that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. And then he adds, beginning at Jerusalem. And as you know, just before he ascended, he said to the disciples in Acts 1, 8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, that's spreading it out to the county level, and in Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. 
The Apostle Paul made an astounding claim in 1 Corinthians 9.23 when he said, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. And Stan preached a, a good sermon on that text earlier this year. And if you missed that, go back and listen to that. Uh, sermon. Uh, Not many of us can say, honestly, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. But Paul did. Here at FCF, as you know, or probably know, we have a really strong emphasis on world missions, and I'm thankful for that. And I want to keep fanning those flames. Uh, In my humble estimation, we're kind of weak here in our Jerusalem. We're not seeing many conversions coming from our city. And I know it's a tough city. It's a rough city. Uh, I personally have been painfully aware of my own inadequacy and personal evangelism for over four decades now. And I'm always reading books on how to do it better. Uh, It's on my prayer list. Uh, But I still struggle. And uh, if that describes you, I just encourage you, keep struggling, keep praying, keep reading, keep growing, keep trying as the Lord gives opportunity. I had an interesting thing happen this week. I have a, a chair. Uh, if you've been in my home, you know we have a big picture windows at the back of our house, and I sit there every morning for my quiet time looking out into our yard. Well, just this week, the neighbor just over the fence, strung up Buddhist prayer flags across there. So when I sit down to my prayer time, there's these Buddhist prayer flags. And I just kind of chuckled and said, well, there's a good reminder to pray for my neighbors. They do not know Jesus, and they need him desperately. But uh, pray. You know, Stan's talked about that. Get your list of 8 to 15 people that you have contact with. And put them on a prayer list. And then see as God gives you opportunity. How he opens the door to share the good news of Jesus. A ninth mark. Is that a good church is one whose leaders are mature godly men of integrity. And I'm going to give a whole other message on church leadership in this series. But let me just mention now. You can't have a healthy church without godly leaders. Not Again, not perfect leaders, but men who are men of integrity, who walk with the Lord. Both times when Paul lists the qualifications for elders, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, the list is primarily godly character qualities. Uh, it's not impressive spiritual gifts. Paul summed it up as saying he must be above reproach, and especially in his home life. How can he manage the church of God if he's not managing his own home well? And so the home life is the test. Uh, The only spiritual gift that's listed is the ability to teach. He has to be able to teach God's word. And uh, you look at the requirements for deacons and deaconesses, as I understand it, in 1 Timothy 3. Again, it's godly character, godly integrity. Apart from preaching and teaching God's word, the main job of elders is to shepherd God's flock, the church. In that final message Paul gave to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 28, he said, Be on guard for yourselves. There's the personal integrity. Guard yourself and for all the flock 
among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd, pastor the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And the Apostle Peter had similar word in 1 Peter 5, 2 and 3, where he says, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but uh, being examples, proving to be examples to the flock. And then in Hebrews thirteen seventeen, it exhorts the entire church, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, which would, for this would be unprofitable for you. And then the final mark of a good church that I'm going to deal with today is that it is one that deals lovingly and biblically with sinning members. I'm dealing here with the subject of church discipline, and that's not a very popular subject in our day. Uh, it's one that many, many churches neglect or evade, dodge, they skip it. But it's absolutely essential if a church wants to be holy and wants to have a vital witness in the community. Because if we do not deal with those who are in open and flagrant sin, uh, pretty soon the leaven spreads through the whole body. Pretty soon the community says, eh, those people are no different than we are. And the church loses the cutting edge of witness. Jesus taught about it in Matthew 18, where, uh, again, I'll deal with this in a separate message. Uh, but he, he there talks about how first, if you know a brother or sister's in sin, go privately. Seek to restore them. Uh, if that doesn't work, he says, take one or two others with you. And if that still doesn't work, it may need to be told to the church. And the whole church prays for and uh, exhorts the person to come back to the Lord. The final step would be, Jesus said, uh, treat the person as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, they're not a believer. Uh, they are excluded from the fellowship. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul directed the church there. They were boasting in a man, you know, we're free in the Lord. Look at this man. He's immoral with his own uh, stepmother, his father's wife. And Paul said, you, you need to expel that man or his sin is going to infect the entire church. So again, I'll deal with that in a, on another message more thoroughly. Uh, two very short but helpful books on finding a healthy church, a good church, are Mark Dever, his book, What is a Healthy Church? And then I think there's a copy of it still out on the book table, Josh Harris, uh, Stop Dating the Church. And he talks about uh, how you need to stop just casually dating and get married to it. And next week I'm going to speak, Lord willing, on church membership. And we're going to, uh, I didn't plan it this way, but we're going to start a new members class next Sunday as well, first hour. And so if you're not a member of this church and you would like to be, uh, you need to reverse it next week and go to the new member class first hour and then come in here second hour. Um, 
in his book, uh, Dever, who will, by the way, be speaking here on June 15th, he has a a helpful one-page summary of what to do if you're thinking about leaving a church uh, before you leave. And then regarding how to find a good church, he lists these four helpful diagnostic questions to ask yourself. He says, first, would I want to find a spouse who has been brought up under this church's teaching? His second question, what picture of Christianity will my children see in this church? Something distinct or something a lot like the world? Third question, would I be happy to invite non-Christians to this church? That is, would they clearly hear the gospel and see lives consistent with it? And his fourth question is, is this church a place where I can minister and serve? He also gives a radical uh, piece of advice. He says, if you're thinking of moving, before you buy a home, find a church. Find a good church and then buy a home near the church so you can be vitally involved in the church life. Most of us reverse that. And I've had people, oh, yeah, I'm moving to so-and-so. Have you looked for a church there? No, we'll find one. And then they email me back and say, we can't find a good church. And that's often true even in, in large cities. So you need to take the checklist I provided today. Uh, Let me recap again. A good church, first of all, is one that treasures and teaches God's word of truth accurately and practically to equip the saints for the work of service. Secondly, it's one where the gospel is proclaimed without compromise. Thirdly, it's one that emphasizes loving God and one another and worshiping God in spirit and truth. Fourthly, it's one that emphasizes making obedient disciples who live by God's grace in the power of the Spirit, apart from legalism. Uh, Fifthly, a good church is one where loving fellowship among the saints is edifying and healthy. Uh, It's sixthly, one where the ordinances of baptism and communion are practiced regularly and biblically. Uh, Seventh, it's one where prayer undergirds everything. Eighth, it's one that emphasizes reaching the lost, both locally and globally. Ninth, one whose leaders are mature, godly men of integrity. And then finally, a church, a good church, deals lovingly and biblically with sinning members. And we're far from perfect in all ten. But that's what we're striving for here, and uh, I hope that none of you hear this message and say, okay, I'm out of here, but rather that you'll join us, imperfect as we are, in seeking to improve in each of these areas by God's grace, that we would someday hear from our Lord, well done, good and faithful servants. Let's bow in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for your word of truth. Thank you that we have it in our language, and we are sorry to, to know that there are many people around the world who yet don't have the word of truth in their uh, native tongue. We pray that that work would extend rapidly until every tongue, tribe, nation, and people would hear the good news about Jesus I ask, Lord, if there are any here this morning 
who have a huge void in their heart because they don't know Jesus, that you would show them how desperate their situation is. They're one heartbeat away from standing before you in judgment, but they're one heartbeat away from receiving eternal life as a free gift that you offer to every sinner, no matter what he or she has done. Jesus offers that pardon, and I pray that no one would leave without receiving it today. We ask you to make us tender and sensitive in our consciences to your word. Give us a heart for those who have no hope and are without you in this world. We would reach out to them with the love of Christ. I pray in his name. Amen.